Good morning and welcome. Did you have a good Thanksgiving? Are you still thankful? Amen. Uh, just a, uh, a mention uh, regarding the Puerto Rican uh, hurricane relief. And as you, you heard Mark say that the, the trailer came in this week, and uh, it's, it doesn't just fall to us to fill it up, uh, all of the other sister churches, and I think it's probably going to be mentioned on the radio, anybody that wants to, to bring um, any of the particulars that, that were mentioned there. But what I'd like to ask you to do is to please, if you bring anything, would you please bring an entire box? Would you fill up a box? Would you tape it off? Uh, it would make it so much easier for us um, to be able to, you know, just deal with boxes instead of just a, just a, a myriad of, of cans. That means we have to buy all these additional boxes uh, to do that. And we're probably going to have to do that to a certain degree. But um, if you could, would you please bring an entire box or two if you like or uh, when you bring water, bring a case of water. Uh, also, too, for any of you guys who work maybe in a warehouse where there are pallets, we are going to need pallets um, in order to stack this stuff on uh, because it's going to have to be, um, you know, shipped and taken off with a forklift. So we have to use pallets. And so uh, we're hoping that maybe, because I know in some of the different, uh, you know, workshops and warehouses and so forth, they just kind of, they throw them away, they put them out by the dumpster. Um, and if that's the case, um, we'd like to be able to take advantage of that. So um, if you could to bring them or let us know uh, and maybe get permission where we could come in and, and pick them up, that would be great. So, uh, so pray for that endeavor that uh, we could fill that thing up as quick as possible and get it down to Puerto Rico. Uh, I don't know if I mentioned this to you. I think I mentioned it on a Wednesday night. But when President Trump uh, visited Puerto Rico and San Juan in particular, he actually visited our sister church, the Calvary Chapel of, of uh, Puerto Rico, or San, San, uh, San Juan, I think. And um, they have continued to be a distribution point. So when this stuff goes in, it's going right to the church. And so they're going to control all the different distribution. And uh, there are 17 of these things around the country. And so uh, let's, uh, let's pray and let's do our part uh, to help out and to encourage uh, the saints uh, down there. The thing that, the, the feedback that we have gotten uh, from Calvary Chapel, Puerto Rico, is that many people are getting saved uh, as these folks come in and, and uh, they minister to them. They don't just, you know, G Jesus just didn't feed the multitudes. Uh, he gave them truth. And so they're doing the same thing there. And so uh, as we do this, the, the fact of the matter is we are going to be impacting lives in a spiritual way. Now let's turn to our Bibles in Revelation chapter, 20, or chapter 22. Yes, we're finished the book of Revelation, so <laughs> amen. <laughs> uh, Revelation 2 and verses 18 and 19, excuse me, 18 through 29, we come to the end of chapter 2. And we're looking at the church of Thyatira. And John writes, And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These things says the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, 
and his feet like fine brass. I know your works and love and service and faith and your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you because you allow that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and to eat things that are sacrificed to idols. And I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her uh, into great tribulation, unless they repent of their deeds. And I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to your works. Now to you I say, and to the rest in Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine or teaching, who have not known the depths of Satan, as they say, and I will put on you no other burden, but hold fast what you have till I come, and he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, and they shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessels. And as I also have received from my Father, I will give him the morning star. And he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And Heavenly Father, we look to you this morning. And Lord, on this week of Thanksgiving, Lord, we want to just, Lord, tell you how appreciative we are, how grateful we are, how thankful we are. And we're thankful, Lord, for redemption. We're thankful, Lord, to know you, the true and the living God. And Father, as we come to this book of Revelation, Lord, we realize that this very time frame that we speak of, Lord, as we're looking at these seven churches, is a time frame in which we live. And we can see, Lord, as we look at all these different churches and all the different letters and what you have to say to each and every one of them, Lord, we can see those, those types of elements at work in, in Christian culture today. And Lord, uh, we pray that, Lord, as you, Lord, search our hearts, as we look at these things, Lord, that they would not be taking place in our midst, Lord, in our church. Lord, how you desire to have a pure church. And Lord, we want to we wanna reflect that. We want to reflect who you are. We want to live for you. Lord, we want to make an impact, Lord, in our culture. We don't want our culture, Lord, to be invading and controlling our lives. And how I pray, Father, as we, Lord, look at these things, that uh, if indeed that is the case, if we find, Lord, there's, Lord, too much toleration Lord, of things that are not right, things that are impure. Lord, things that do not glorify and honor you. That, Lord, we'd be willing. We'd be willing to hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches today. Lord, I pray that we would always, no matter where we are, at what point in our, our Christian journey, that we would always, Lord, have a, Lord, a repentant heart, always have a tender heart. To always be, 
Lord, soft and responsive, Lord, to you. Father, I thank you for those that are here today. And Lord, I pray that as we consider the truths that we find, Lord, in this section of Revelation, that, Lord, you would write your truth upon our hearts. And, Lord, we thank you for your blessed keeping power, Lord, at work within our lives. Oh, Lord, how thankful we are for the Holy Spirit. Lord, how we need that sustaining power, that keeping power, that purifying power of the Word of God to be at work, Lord, in our midst and in our lives. For, Lord, you have called us to be salt and to be light, Lord, to our culture, to our society. Lord, not to be, Lord, not to be a chameleon. Lord, not to be like the culture, but to be like Jesus. So, Lord, I pray that you would help us and strengthen us with your might in the inner person to bring you glory, Lord, to bring you honor and praise. For, Father, we ask all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. You know, the unbelieving world has often looked at the church, and they have accused us of being intolerant regarding many of the practices that begin to take place and are acceptable within our culture and our society. And I think as Christians, uh, we, we often feel the pressure of that. We don't want to be alienated. You know, we don't want to... Uh, you know, have people think that we're, we're so absolutely different that we're absolutely unrelatable. And I think when we feel that political correctness pressure, um, that there's a danger for us to cave in. It's a danger for us to give in to those kind of pressures that we see. And I see this taking place in Christianity. I think it's always taken place to a certain degree. But I don't think there's been any kind of pressure like there is today regarding the political correctness um, and how it is, you know, uh, we're to think, you know, how we're to act, how we're to practice. And, and, and it seems to be that our culture has become tolerant of everything and almost anything uh, except for God. Uh, they don't want to tolerate God. They don't want to tolerate the Bible. And as soon as you begin to, in any way, begin to bring that into the conversation, um, you know, they want to shoo you. you know, they want to just silent you. Um, because, after all, uh, the things that we're saying seem to be so absolutely different. Uh, and, and again, charging us that we are intolerant. And the fact of the matter is, uh, I think uh, when, you, when, you, when, you, when you look at the church, uh, we, it's interesting how the, the gospel, you know, God has made it so accessible and acceptable. Um, and it's only for those who really want to fight against the truth and reject the truth that they really have uh, oftentimes that kind of attitude uh, toward it. But again, we see that there's a fear sometimes that can enter in to our thinking and into our thought life um, when, again, it cuts across the, the, the morals and the values of, of the, the culture uh, in which we live. Now, this letter here to the church of Thyatira happens to be the longest because of all the things, uh, the corrupt things that were taking place in this particular church. And, you know, Jesus did not take lightly uh, those who represent him, you know, those who communicate his gospel, you know, those who basically take his name. Uh, we realize that he's not, he's, he, he doesn't uh, take lightly the things that take place, you know, in his name because they clearly represent him. And, and things that are simply not true to the word and not true to the Holy Spirit. You know, I think Peter touched on it 
when he said this over in his epistle of 1 Peter chapter 4, when he says this in verse 17, he says, For the time has come that judgment is to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? And so we see that, that God, the Lord, he doesn't allow certain things to take place, uh, maybe for a certain period of time, but eventually he comes and he deals with those things. And uh, this is something that uh, I've been keenly aware of, particularly as a pastor. Um, some of the things that have been, you know, taking place in churches maybe over the last 20, 25 years and different things that, that God has exposed them, uh, that God has brought them to the light. Uh, certain, you know, there may be certain things that uh, take place, you know, in the world uh, and because of its low standards and its, its moral climate, um, you know, people are sort of, you know, uh, willing to just sort of accept that and oh, that, that's, oh, that, that's not a problem. But when it comes to the church, we find that the Lord is very uh, careful about how we represent him. And so that's why he brings judgment, if you will. He brings exposure, uh, you know, to the house of God. And to the house of God, we're really speaking about the church of God. We're speaking Because the house of God is the people of God. And so we see that at work here. Now, the time frame of this particular message, in a general kind of sense, speaks to that period between 600 A.D. and 1600 A.D. This period was known uh, in the church as the Dark Ages. And what happens is when the light begins to go out, things get very dark. We find that bacteria lives in darkness. I mean, can you imagine what it would be like, how, how your health would change if you had to live in your basement? I would not want to live in my basement. I think it's a pretty good basement, but I'll tell you what, it's got a lot of mold spores down there. And uh, I'm uh, pretty much allergic to every kind of mold that's on the planet. I think if I had to live, you know, in that space, uh, I would not live very long. And, uh, you know, when the light goes out, we find that that's when the things begin to just sort of grow. And that's why Jesus said to you and me, we are the light of the world. And how important it is that we continue to shine for Jesus Christ. And remember, uh, when sin enters in, the light gets dim. Uh, you know, when, when sin enters in, the light can be extinguished uh, in the lives of God's people and in, in the light of the church. That has happened from time to time. And so the period that this speaks of, in a general sense, uh, not to mean that it only, it only applies to that time frame, but generally it spoke of that particular period, which was actually a whole millennium. A thousand years, which which theologians refer to as the Dark Ages. Uh, now, looking at verse 18, we're introduced to this church, this church of Thyatira. Uh, the city was known, interestingly, for its fabrics and its dyes. And if you remember back in Acts chapter 16, there was a convert of Paul. Her name was Lydia. And we're told there that she was a seller of purple. She was from Thyatira, and she was a seller of purple. In other words, she sold, um, she sold, she sold purple and clothing and um, you know, dyed garments and that sort of thing, whether, whether she represented herself as a businesswoman or whether she represented a company there in Thyatira. Now, it says here, as the Lord identifies himself, and remember, he takes something in every one of these messages to the different seven churches. He takes something out of that chapter one profile of himself. And we've seen that with each and every one of these messages. And the first thing he says, he refers to himself as the son of God. This is the one and only time in Revelation that he refers to himself as the son of God or the son of God is mentioned. 
The Son of Man will be mentioned, but not the Son of God. Which leads me to believe that it's very possible that they were struggling with the deity of Jesus Christ. As many people do. Um, many of many people, many Jewish people before, you know, they're converted. Um, uh, they wrestle with that particular issue, you know, because of the, 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 the Shema, uh, the Shema, rather, over there in Numbers chapter 6, the Lord thy God is one. And so when it really comes to the Trinity, it's not really something that any of us could really fathom deeply and understand. So when it comes to this whole idea of Jesus, and a lot of people will say, well, he was a great uh, uh, teacher, a great moral teacher, a great example. Uh, he was a great healer and a physician. They'll accept that kind, of, that kind of thing. But yet, when it comes to the whole idea of him being God, they have a problem with that. And I'll tell you what, the, the natural mind, the, the, the logical mind, uh, has a problem with that. You, in other words, you can't fully grapple with it and understand it. Okay. In other words, just like many things, you've got to accept by faith. You've got to accept by faith, uh, you know, given... The, the, you know, the, the Bible declaration and the Bible witness about, you know, who he was uh, as far as, you know, the Old Testament speaking of him prophetically. And again, and again as we see him revealed in the New Testament, uh, again, you can't fully understand the Trinity. There's, you can take it to a certain point, but the fact of the matter is you've got to accept it by faith. Listen, let me tell you what, when you come to the very first verse of the Bible, in the beginning, God. Okay, explain that to me. You can't explain it because we live in a finite realm. He's infinite. So when it comes to the very first verse of the Bible, we realize that we, we have to accept it, and, and it's true as you go through the Bible. That's why the Bible is just rejected out of hand because people try to intellectually, logically, rationally try to figure it all out, and you cannot. You simply have to accept by faith. And here's the beautiful thing. When you and I accept by faith, the, the understanding will come later about so many things. But there still are things, again, like the Trinity, that they're mysterious. There's a certain amount of mystery to that, that as much as I try, I can't quite get my head around it. But oh, how beneficial and wonderful it is when we come to the Bible by faith. And, and we simply believe um, what the Bible is communicating to us and speaking to our lives. So these things says the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. Uh, we, we see, remember, over in chapter 1, that's that borrowed there, his eyes um, and basically his feet. And his eyes basically indicating that his gaze, his penetrating gaze, nothing can hide from that piercing gaze of the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember we saw his eyes like, just like a flame of fire. You know, nothing, you know, nothing, there's no disguise. Uh, everything, the writer of Hebrews says, everything is naked and transparent and open before him. Nobody can hide. I can remember when I first came to, to, to the Lord and realizing there were certain things in my life that were very ungodly. And I can remember because there's something about the human heart that likes to hide. It's from the fall, isn't it? It's from the fall that as soon as, as, soon as sin enters into the equation, there's this, there's this hide, you know, hide and seek thing that goes on with God. And I can remember the revelation coming to me, and I don't know if it came to me as a result of, 
of uh, you know reading a certain portion of scripture, but I remember realizing I can't hide anything from him. It's crazy. It's crazy to think that I can hide anything from the Lord. Oh, that penetrating gaze, gaze of his, and also to his feet very soon, we're going to witness him stepping into history and intervening. And whenever we'll see the association of brass with that, he's stepping into history for a time of judgment. You know, he has come. He has come as the Lamb of God. He is, he will, and he will now come as the line of the tribe of Judah. Two different distinct, distinct uh, aspects of his personage. He comes as the Lamb to be a sacrifice for the sin of the world, to go to a cross. And secondly, he comes as the, the line of the tribe of Judah uh, to bring judgment upon a Christ-rejecting world. Now, there are many good things that he has to say about the church in Thyatira. His affirmation basically is fivefold. Um, and, and the thing about Jesus that we've seen so far is he always begins on a positive note. You know, if you ever have to correct somebody, that's a good way to begin. Amen? I think we have to dis- maybe we have to discover that by experience, right? Because uh, it, it's so easy. There's something about the human nature that tends to be critical. There's something about our fallen nature that tends to, to critique things and to look at things in the wrong kind of way. Um, and, uh, and I think sometimes having that, uh, we have to be very careful, you know, of how we present that. If we, if we have a constructive criticism, you know, how do we present that? I think a good way to do that is, you know what, to give some praise, to give some affirmation. Uh, and we see the Lord doing that here. And he basically says, I, I know this about you. I understand this. I know this about you. And it's a fivefold affirmation. And he says, I know your works, your love, and service, your faith, and your patience. And again, these qualities are beautiful qualities. And one thing about them, they're all interconnecting. You ever notice that, uh, uh, you know, about the, the virtues and the qualities of the Holy Spirit, how interconnecting they are and how overlapping they are in so many different ways? You know, the, the fact is, you cannot love, you cannot, without love, you cannot serve. We try, but you know, without love, it's like, why am I the only one serving? Why isn't anybody helping me? Does anybody really appreciate this? And that's why it's so important that, that love is active in our lives as we're serving. Because if it's just out of duty, now, now sometimes duty will carry us along, okay? Duty isn't wrong. But I'll tell you what, we need more than just a sense of duty. But we, we need to have the love of God at work within our life. I, I was thinking about, uh, we just studied it in Genesis uh, chapter 29, verse 20. And when Jacob uh, <clears throat> made an agreement uh, with Laban for Rachel, Remember that story where it says that, that, uh, that uh, uh, he loved her so much that when, he, that when he served the seven years for her, it seemed like a few days. Isn't that, a, isn't that awesome about love? When you're serving out of love, you know, you're not putting some kind of, you're not putting a stopwatch on it. You're not putting a clock and a timer on it. It just seems like for seven years for Jacob, just seemed like, oh, it was like a few days. Why? Because he was motivated and moved by love. And that's why it's important in our service for Jesus. We're not going to serve him if we're not motivated by love. 
If we don't have the love of God at work within our hearts, within our lives. The other thing about love too, you know, love gives birth to obedience. Remember, Jesus said, if you love me, what? Keep my commands or, or obey my commands. If, if there's love in our heart, it'll birth obedience. And it won't be, you know, it won't be a harsh kind of, I have to do this, you know, kind of thing. It'll be, uh, you know, just a response in, in, in love. And even in Galatians 5, 6, even there, the Bible tells us that faith operates what? Through love. Yeah, faith is very critical, very important. But we find that it really operates through this whole important aspect of love. And again, so again, we see these interconnecting qualities. And all these things were taking place in this church at Thyatira. They labored. They labored wonderfully in love. You know, I, when I think about that, I always think of uh, Hebrews 6.10, um, where, um, where it speaks about uh, God is not unrighteous to forget um, your work and your labor of love that you have shown toward his name in that you've ministered to the saints and you continue to do so. God never forgets that. Sometimes we forget it. And that's okay. I think that's good. I, I think that's good that we, we forget. I'm not, you know, um, you know, do you ever have somebody do something for you and they'll never let you forget it? Never happened to you? That never, for the, to the day you die, they're not going to let you forget the fact they've done something for you. And I think that when there's love there, you just forget it. You, 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 you know, you're not tallying it up. You're not adding it up. It's just like, oh, it's a joy to do it. I remember some, some brother came up to me, and I had done something for him like 25 years ago. And he come up and made a special uh, point of remembering that and, and telling me about it. And, and I was blessed that, that you know, I, I didn't think anything about it. It was just, I was like, I considered it really nothing. But oh, it blessed him. And you know, it blesses the Lord. It, it blesses the Lord when we do those little things. I always make a cup of tea for my bride every morning. Because I'm usually down there first. And uh, I usually make a cup of tea. And she came down this morning. She said, where's my cup of tea? And I let some dead air kind of just take place there. Because I wanted to see what else she was going to say. <laughs> I was setting her up. I said, oh, it's in the microwave. It's already all done. <laughs> and and it, you know, it is. Isn't it just a joy? Just to do things, you know, for, for, for love's sake. Now he says in verse 20, Nevertheless, I have a few things against you that you allow uh, that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and to eat things sacrificed to idols. Now the word allow here can also be, and perhaps maybe you have a translation where it's translated to tolerate. 
And, and the fact of the matter is that this church was too tolerant of certain sinful activity that was taking place in their church. Now, this reference here takes us back to a notorious Old Testament character, a queen by the name of Jezebel. That is one name I've never heard anybody name their kid. It's like Judas, okay? It's got such a stigma to it. No one's going to name their little sweet little daughter Jezebel. And no one's going to name their sweet little, you know, round-eyed, big-eyed boy uh, Judas. But as we look at this Old Testament character, she was kind of interesting. She was the wife of Ahab. And she was the one who basically introduced um, idolatry and the worship of Baal, which was a fer fertility god. So anytime you had the fertility gods of the Old Testament involved in any kind of aspect of worship, it always introduced basically sexual immorality. Because anytime you went to the groves that were places up in the hills, uh, you know, altars and so forth, or temples, they would, uh, there would always be prostitution. It was always a part of that particular. And we see it, we see it by different names. Uh, you see it in the Greek by Aphrodite. Um, uh, in, in the, I believe it's in the, um, the Babylonian would be Astarte. Uh, these oftentimes are the same figure, the same information, the same uh, individual, uh, but as, as you cross different cultural lines, um, it's basically the same thing. Well, this woman was very shrewd, very calculating, and if you remember, she, she murdered and plotted against a, an innocent man by the name of Naboth. And it was simply for the purpose of, of murdering him to acquire his property. She even at one point threatened to kill uh, the prophet Elijah because Elijah basically hacked up all her prophets of Baal, all of her false prophets, and she, and she uh, threatened him. And we know that he ran 80 miles down to the Sinai. Didn't need to, <laughs> but, uh, you know, she just scared the ever-living life out of him. And, uh, but it, you, you could say at the end of the day, she went to the dogs. And rightfully so. And if you don't know the story, uh, a wild guy by the name of Jehu came up to the, to the palace there in Samaria. And uh, she stuck her head out to say something to him. And he said, is, you know, is, is there any servants of the Lord up there? Okay, if you're up there, throw her out. And uh, they literally threw her out of the castle window there, the palace window. And uh, we're, we're told there, according to a prophecy, uh, that she was basically eaten by the dogs. And uh, it was, a, it was a, um, a, a rightful end for a person of her character. Now, this woman here in Thyatira, her real name was not Jezebel. Basically, what that did is identify the character of this particular woman. And it says that she called herself a prophetess. Uh, in other words, she was a fraud. Uh, it wasn't the fact that there wasn't prophetesses. There was. We find some of them in the New Testament. Um, you know, we find uh, prophets in the New Testament. Um, you know, I was kind of thinking it's interesting because, I, you know, I think that we've had different individuals that have very, their ministry has been very, very prophetic in nature uh, as God has used them in different ways. Um, I, think, I think guys like Billy Graham I think guys like Chuck Smith, I think uh, Luis Palau, I think individuals that God has used. In, and what, you know what I like about that, though? They don't go around calling themselves a prophet. Because every time I look at some religious, goofy religious group, 
they got all the titles. Do you ever notice that? They're prophets. They're this. They're that. You know, trying to convince you to, and identifying themselves. And, and what I love about the true prophets of God, there's such humility there. And, and it's just a beautiful thing to see. And somebody may be, you know, somebody may, you know, have a powerful ministry. But they're not highlighting that. What they're doing is they're, is they're promoting Jesus Christ. You see, here was a woman, here was a person that was basically promoting themselves, promoting their ministry. She was basically a fraud, using this spiritual position to control people. And, and the thing is, her teaching encouraged Christians to immerse themselves in the depraved culture of that particular day, which, which involved sexual immorality and also to idolatry. And I think, you know, regarding this whole matter of idolatry, uh, I think sex is idolatry today. It's been made an idol today in our culture and our society. And, and we have to be very careful that we don't allow that kind of, not, uh, not activity, but even the thinking of it. And so here were individuals that were in a church, a Christian church. And it's interesting because, you know, sometimes when you see somebody's life begin to, migrate and move away from God. Sometimes it's hard to believe that knowing them where they started out here and years later where you find them over here, you, you may not even be able to identify them. Do you know anybody like that? I do. And it's sad. And sometimes you wonder, what, you know, how, how did that happen? How did that happen? I read this book in 1985, 1985, 1986, right after it was published. And I don't know if you've ever heard about the cult called Children of God. Anybody hear about that one? I know it's a little, it's kind of reaching back there about 30 years. Uh, but they were very popular um, uh, through the 1970s and into the 1980s. And there might even be a little bit element of them. A lot of times uh, these things die very hard and take a long time. But... Uh, it was a group that started out, you know, with, a, with basically good um, moral Christian behavior. Uh, obviously, uh, the Bible wasn't taught very well, and sometimes that can happen in Christian groups. And all of a sudden, you know, you start, you know, picking and choosing, um, you know, different verses of Scripture here and there. And that's always a dangerous thing. It's so important uh, that we have a a, a, a continual understanding of going through the Bible uh, to know what it says rather than picking and choosing. And that's one thing that, that cults will always do. Always just sort of pick and choose this thing and this doctrine over here and amalgamate it in order to bring to pass, you know, whatever their particular theme is, whatever their idea is. And there was this group called the Children of God. And uh, the, the, the leader there, the founder, was David Berg. Uh, he later uh, changed his name to the prophet Moses David Berg. And the book was interesting, interestingly written by his daughter uh, as the cult just began to fall apart. And I wanted to read to you, I took an excerpt from the book because I've thought about this book and, you know, many different times over the years. And, and just to watch sometimes how a group can, go, can start, you know, over here with God and with the Bible and end up over here, you know, so twisted 
uh, and, and just so wrong and cultic. She writes this, with the advent of relative wealth, is, they, were, they were never really wealthy, but many, money started to come in. However, the complexion of the family began to change rapidly. So it just started out with a big family, and then all these other people were added to it. As our economic conditions improved in late 1973, she calls him Mo. This is her father, Moses, uh, Moses David Berg. Mo began to publish more and more messages on sex. Among them were uh, messages entitled Revolutionary Sex, uh, Revolutionary Women, Revolutionary Marriage, um, The Mountain Maid, and along with his letters on the goddesses with whom he was having sexual experiences, and in a calculated barrage of sexually provo provocative literature, he began to inflame the imaginations of his followers with sexual desires, but all in the name of Jesus, and in the name of what is, and in the name of what is natural, God-given, or God-created, or perfectly normal. End of quote. In a letter entitled "Come on, Ma, Burn Your Bra," he condemned those within our ranks who continue to hang on to their misconceived Christian morality. As in days past when I was classed with the unspirituals, the disciples who were, who were dragging their conservative heels were in peril of receiving the same condemnation. He put this, this was one of his messages, one of his letters. Uh, quote, a revolution is a total break from the traditions of man and his churches and his preconceived ideas about God and misconceptions of morality. We have turned completely around and are going in a different direction. No longer man's way, but God's way. We are free to uh, enjoy to the full the beauties and wonders of his creation and all of its pleasures, which he himself created for our enjoyment. Now he's referring here in a cloaked way to sex, and it, and it becomes more overt, you know, as time goes on and the messages continue to come out. She says, Mo warned his followers that those who could not handle the Mo letters already written on sexual freedom, quote, in the Lord, would certainly not be able to handle the heavier forthcoming letters. And so he wrote this, quote, So if you think that sex and the human body are something evil, and to be hidden instead of the beautiful, wonderful creations of God, to be revealed and enjoyed to the full, then you are indeed an old bottle. And I doubt very much if you will be able to stand the even heavier letters which are already on their way. So she says, My dad was writing this letter, as preparation for a new wave of perverted doctrine that he was about to unleash on his disciples, breaking down the traditional Christian morality of his followers was a delicate process and needed to be handled in stages. He used effective psychology to keep the disciples eager for the next letter. Most of the followers were very insecure and didn't want to be left behind, playing on their insecurity and feelings of inferiority and spiritual pride. Mo goaded, or goaded rather, his followers on, gently put pitting one against the other to see who was more revolutionary. And so he also chided those who were reluctant, quote, by saying, if you can't receive it, then you're an old bottle. Only the true revolutionaries, the true liberated, and the truly spiritual can receive God's new wine, God's uh, specially uh, revealed truths for today. The reward was the carrot of sensual pleasure. And he goes on, she goes on to say this. <clears throat> uh, with exhortations like this, Mo fully primed the pump, preparing the disciples for the main events, which he had already been practicing. And by the time Come On Ma was published in December 1973, 
he and Maria were taking the first steps toward instituting what Dad called the exciting but dangerous new ministry of flashy, excuse me, flirting, uh, flirty fishing. The movement had reached another turning point, and I'll end there. The, uh, the idea of flirty fishing was using the women in the movement to evangelize men on the outside through sex. And what is amazing is that in a relatively short time, how this group had moved from a place where they're saying they're seeking God, or they're saying they're reading the Bible to get to this particular place. Because when you read here about the church of Thyatira, it's hard to believe that this was kind of going on in the church. But these kind of things can happen. And that's why it is so important that we stay faithful to the Scripture, faithful to the Lord, you know, in spirit and in word. Now, we, we know that uh, that kind of thing isn't going to happen, you know, in our type of church. But yet those kind of things take place out there, you know, in, in, in Christian circles. And uh, we, uh, we see that here taking place uh, through uh, a personage uh, who is calling herself a, a prophet. And just like, uh, you know, David Moses, or Moses David Berg, uh, you know, began to uh, use these titles to impress people and eventually to control people and to destroy, um, you know, any kind of Christian impact they would ever, ever have. Now, as we move into verse 21... The concern of Jesus here for this particular church is the purity of his people. Because we know that sexual, impu sexual impurity, it defiles and it darkens the entire person. Have you discovered a kind of interesting as you've watched this recent debate regarding aggressive sexual behavior taking place in our culture? I have to say... I think Hollywood's very well deserving of it. But what I find interesting as I look at it, as I, as I, as I, I study it, that for the last 40 years, we have encouraged and endorsed total sexual freedom. And not only total sexual freedom, but freedom from any moral code in our society. And what's happening now as Pandora's box of these things is wide open, a lot of people are crying foul and saying, we don't like it. And we've been saying this all along. We've been saying this all along. You're going down the wrong road. But this is what the culture has been pushing. This is what they've been endorsing. And it started back in the 60s. This is about 50 years now. Doesn't the Lord always know best? <laughs> he always, he knows. He knows what's best for us. How many of us, we would get to a place maybe in our 20s or 30s, and we would look back. When we were 18, we realized how stupid our parents were. When we got to be 30, we realized how genius they were. 
And I gave her time to repent of her sexual morality. I was referring back to Jezebel and her followers. You know, God never rushes to judgment. He is so long-suffering. He is so incredibly merciful and patient. And he gives her, like anyone, he gives, he gives an individual time. Time to respond. Time to turn. You know, in Romans chapter 1, it says, three times. And, and, it, and you know, Romans chapter 1 is about, it leads up to all the, it, it begins with the degradation of the culture and society, and it leads up to perverted sexual behavior. And it says in that text three times, God gave them up. And you know what I always see that as? I see that as a parent. And maybe this has maybe happened to you or to some of us here where you've raised up your children uh, and sometimes they just, you know, they can really rebel against us as parents. We see it. it it's, it's happened wholesale in our culture. It happens to us even as Christians where a parent just says, I have to, I, I just I give up. I can't do any more. And, and it's, God isn't saying, I threw them out. He's not saying that. And I threw them out. No. I gave them up. He's so gracious. He's so merciful. And, and he waits. He, he waits for an opportunity. I, I, I love uh, Isaiah 30, I think it is. It says, therefore will the Lord wait that he might be gracious unto you. See, sometimes God has to just, he has to wait. He has to wait where we're, where we're at that point where we're just, we're ready to repent. I always thought when I came to Christ and when I was 25 years old, oh, how much it would have been so much better for me to come to Christ at 15 years old. But I was not ready back then. I was barely ready when, <laughs> at 25 but it was the grace of God that just broke through upon my life. And I realized it was as if blinders came off. Because I knew I was on a search. There was no doubt about it. I, I worked in dental labs in Philadelphia, um, New Jersey, and Rochester. And, and, where, and whenever I'd you know, go out for lunch, I'd always end up in a bookstore. Always end up in a bookstore. Because there was, just, there, was a, there was a hunger, and I didn't realize it was a spiritual hunger, but there was a hunger in me looking for something. And, and when, I met the, when I met the truth in the gospel, I didn't recognize it. I didn't recognize it immediately. But oh, for the patience and the love of God and the grace of God. And all of a sudden, it just seemed like, wow, the blinders come off. It's like, oh, it's what I've been waiting for all my life. What a glorious revelation. That's why, you know, we need to be patient with people. We need to pray for folks. And don't be afraid to go back again with truth. A little guy named Dougie used to work in a dental lab with me. I just couldn't stop witnessing to him. And one day he looked at me and said, leave me alone. And it was time to leave him alone. <laughs> And the next time he came to me, he was saved. I need to just let, let the Lord work. You know, the seed was planted. Uh, I was power seed.
So I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed. Uh, some translation called a bed of suffering. And you know, there's a flip side to pleasure, and that is pain. And sexual immorality always brings pain, self-inflicted suffering. Remember back in the late 80s with the AIDS epidemic and the 90s? We were hearing it from every direction. Do you hear anything about it anymore? As if it's been abolished. It's been eradicated. AIDS is gone. No, it's not. Here's the global 2016 statistics. 36.7 million today are living with HIV. Since the outbreak of AIDS around 1980, 78 million have become infected. 35 million of that 78 have died. One million people died in 2016 last year. And also last year, 1.6 million of newly infected cases. And the newly infected cases in 2015 were 2.1 million. And, and, and you know, Hollywood and the culture acts like, eh, just go jump into bed with anybody and take a gun. You ever hear of Russian roulette? That's what you're doing. That's what you're doing. It's a very, very dangerous world out there today. And I, re I, th I, re the re I think the reason why we don't hear it is the devil doesn't want people thinking about that. He loves immorality because of the wreckage and the devastation, what it does to people's lives. So I'll cast her into a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of their deeds. So he graciously gives them another opportunity to repent. Now here are the sorry consequences of sin. I'll kill her children with death. Isn't it true so often too many children have to die? Since 1980, there have been 1.5 billion abortions worldwide. You know what abortion is? It's the bastard child of the sex revolution. That's what it is. Abortion is about sex without responsibility, and it's about sex without, a, without consequences. But there are consequences. There are devastating consequences. Ask anybody that's had one. There's forgiveness. Thank God. Because there are some in here this morning that have had abortions. And the grace of God is cleansed, forgiven. But that's what abortion's about. Sex without responsibility, sex without consequences. And abortion is the bastard child of the sexual revolution of the 1960s.
And the Lord says in verse 23, I am he who searches the minds and hearts. I will give to each one of you according to your works. You know, one of my favorite verses in um, the, 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 the Kings section of the Bible is 2 Chronicles 16.9. And uh, Hanani the prophet is speaking to King Asa. And he says, the eyes of the Lord search to and fro the earth to find that person whose heart is loyal toward him. Oh, God is searching today. He's searching for that person who will be loyal to him. I think he searches through the church. Every time I think of that scripture, I think, oh, Lord, may my heart be loyal to you. Lord, don't let me be, don't let me be a cheater when it comes to my relationship with you. Because our relationship with him, every other relationship we have is dependent upon that relationship. Amen? They rise or fall according to our relationship with him. And I believe in every generation, God is searching to and fro throughout all the earth to find that man, that woman, that person whose heart will be loyal to him. Now, as closing thoughts to this church and basically to the faithful who have if they've held out in the face of opposition, in the face of all the different pressure of their culture and their society and what had even taken place in their church. He says, Now I say to you and to the, to the rest in Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine or this teaching, who have not known the depths of Satan, as they say, I will put on you no other burden. You know, as many organizations today, you know, they may call themselves Christian, but their practices more align them with Lucifer than they do with Jesus Christ. Man, we want to be aligned with him. I don't want to compromise anything to put more seats in this place or, or to make it bigger. You know, to have a big umbrella because I, I don't want to mention certain things that would convict people. rather be small and solvent. Not just to be small for being small's sake, but if it means being true to him, if it means being without compromise, bring it on, Lord. He says, hold fast to what you have till I come. In other words, hold on to the word of God. Man, hold on to the, to the truth. It's a great weapon. Don't let go of the truth. See, that's what happened in that cult group. The devil was using Mo to basically disarm them from truth. And he did a pretty good job of it, too. That's what Satan does with a Christian today. He works on a person over a process of time. 
trying to get us to migrate and move away from truth one verse at a time. Get you in a group of people where certain things are acceptable. Maybe have less pangs of conscience. <laughs> and the end is devastating. Hold on to the truth. Hold on to God's word. He who overcomes and keeps my works until the end. To him I will give power over the nations. Now he quotes here from, from Psalm 2, which is really a great psalm. And uh, I'll just mention a few verses out of Psalm 2 that leads up to uh, verse 9. He says, uh, it's a messianic psalm. I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me. You are my son. Today I've begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. And that's exactly what he's done with us. He's asked of the Father. And the Father is given to his Son, the Gentile nations, the church. And here we are. Many people, many tongues, many languages, many backgrounds. And he speaks here about what will take place in the future. When he returns, you shall break them with a rod of iron. And you shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Isn't it a wonderful thing, folks, that we are going to rule and reign with him? Now, you may not feel like much now, but you are going to be something then. You know, oftentimes we look at ourselves and we're like, ah. <laughs> Don't feel like much. Man, you are really going to be something then. What a glorious and awesome day that is going to be. And so here in this final section here, I will give him the morning star. Later he's going to say, I am the bright and the morning star. You know what the morning star is? It's Venus. Do you remember back in the spring? I was telling you, I was up, in, uh, up around 4.30 in the morning. I just happened to be sitting on the floor in the living room uh, praying. And I looked out an eastern, win eastern window and I saw this bright star. And, uh, and it just grabbed my attention. And, and I came to realize that it was, it was, it was basically the, the morning star, which is basically Venus. Uh, second planet from the sun, Mars being first, brightest star in the night sky. It rises as much as three hours before the sun. But to see it, you got to get up early when it's still dark. There's an interesting prophecy that we have in the book of Malachi. Last book of the Bible, last chapter of that particular book. And uh, Malachi says this. He says, but to you who fear my name, the sun, not S-O-N, it's a play on words. The sun, S-U-N, of righteousness will arise with healing in his wings. Now, this is simply a prophecy of the return of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In other words, when he comes, he will, it will be as visible as the noonday sun. And what it's going to do, it's going to break that long night of the dark ages. He's going to rise with healing in his wings. 
So it's, 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 it's a hymn. But, but again, the, the picture here, <laughs> uh, figuratively speaking, is that of the sun. Now, what he's talking about here in Revelation 2 and Malachi 4 are the two stages of his return. First, he comes before the rising of the sun when things are still dark, the rapture of the church. He comes for his own. It's a promise. It's a promise to this church. It's a promise to the, to the faithful in this church that you will be a part of the rapture. And of course, Malachi chapter 4, later he arises in all of his strength, with all of his glory, and is visible for the whole world to see. So we have a beautiful picture here. This is the first picture in germ form of the rapture that we find in the book of Revelation. Time is up. Amen? Father, we are so grateful for your promises. Thank you, Lord, that you are not only coming to this earth to square things away. Lord, you have a special promise. To those who are faithful, those who remain pure, Lord, not getting caught up in living like the culture of this world, a blessed promise of escape, the rapture. And Lord, you are, you are indeed the bright and morning star. Help us, I pray. Help us to live for you. Help us to serve you. And to serve you, Lord, with, with a heart of love. Lord, not doing things just out of a sense of duty. But Lord, realizing because of what you've done for us that our service to you Lord, that it would be a love gift. That out of gratitude, out of worship, Lord, out of praise, Lord, I pray you bless your people. Father, this is such a busy, distracted time of year. Help us to keep our focus. Help us, Lord, to keep the main thing the main thing. And as we do that, Lord, you'll take care of all the rest. Father, we thank you. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.